Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You must see the central narrative that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, January 3rd, 2023, the 713th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to this podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you'll be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple of days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble, all I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the merch site, and the social media by going to linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So happy new year, everybody. The first episode after the brand new year feels almost exactly like last year, but you know, three days more hopeful because things do actually keep getting better as we go along. And I often remind people, think back to where we were on November 4th, 2020, November 7th, 2020, 
after they announced on the television that Joe Biden really did win Arizona, which means he really did become president. And then throughout December, we start hearing about all of the rampant election fraud. We see people testifying to what they saw. We get the affidavits. Rudy goes around and has his meetings and the states still certify in the same way the television told us on December 14th, 2020. You remember in Michigan at the state house, Gretchen Whitmer locked the doors so the alternate slate of electors could not even enter. And then right after the holidays, Trump rally in Georgia, Georgia runoff election stolen on behalf of Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff in Georgia. And the very next day, we have the certification of Biden electors and the very violent insurrection. There was going to be two hours in each house for each state where they made the argument that the election in their state was not valid. And the very violent insurrection made all of that impossible. They broke for a few hours. They agreed that they would only do two hours total in each house. That's not what the rules say to do. But hey, they can bend the rules however they want when there's a very violent insurrection and the television is going to tell everybody, hey, guys, the rules don't matter anymore because there was a very violent insurrection. And so let's just approve of this illegitimate president in the middle of the night. We're going to tell everybody that it really counts and they're just going to believe us because there's absolutely nothing else they can do. They already had a very violent insurrection. What's next? What's next? So we go through the next couple of weeks and then they stage an inauguration ceremony for Joe Biden. He was not sworn in at the right times. His presidential motorcade as it drove down the streets of Washington, D.C., drove past soldiers in Washington, D.C. with their backs turned to Joe Biden's car. And then he got a non-traditional gun salute at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. There were a lot of strange things about that day, but everyone on television agreed that Joe Biden was now the legitimate president of the United States, and that was that. And if you ever, ever, ever talk about it again, you're a domestic terrorist. So all I ask is that you think back to those days and remember how you felt and then think about how you feel right now. It's a lot better, right? I mean, don't get me wrong. These two years have been very bad, as you might expect, living under an illegitimate authoritarian dictatorship as if we were in a banana republic. We never, ever imagined that that could happen here, but it turns out it can, and now it has, and we are working our way out of that problem. The idea that the problem is as big now, though, as it was back then does not make any sense to me. We've been making progress across the board and most particularly where it matters the most, at least in my view, which is the process of the awakening. Anything that propels the awakening forward is good. Anything that hinders that awakening process is bad. That's how it breaks for me. That's how I process the situation. And I think progress along those lines is undeniable, indisputable. I do not see how anybody could possibly imagine that the awakening in any way has been slowed down by these two years 
dealing with life under the fake administration. People are beginning to see the problems all around them. And of course, last night we had a massive public display of potentially one of those problems with DeMar Hamlin collapsing on the field during Monday night football. And that, of course, is an awful situation. And I know everyone's praying for his recovery, but that seems awfully unlikely at this point. It would be a miracle and we can pray for miracles. But as we do that and remain sensitive to the fact that a young man's life is actually on the line, we also do need to analyze it from the perspective of realism. And a realistic perspective says that while the TV is certain that what happens to Hamlin is something called commotio cortis that results from being hit in a certain way in that chest area in the heart and then that causing a heart attack. And as this is a term that I have just heard of within the last 24 hours, and I imagine many of you have just heard in the last 24 hours, we are basically just going with what we are hearing from experts who have experience in this field, who are familiar with the condition. And there are experts on both sides of this issue. Some believe that that is possible. Some believe that's possible and exacerbated by any potential heart condition that could result from DeMar Hamlin having been vaccinated as the vast, vast majority of the NFL is almost everyone. And then there are some who don't believe that and that Hamlin's collapse was like many of the athletes we've seen collapsing over the last year and a half or so. And it is more a direct result of the vaccine. It's impossible, even with the commotio cordis diagnosis that seems to be settling in as the accepted narrative to totally ignore the effects that the vaccine might have had in causing the situation in full. So we'll have to wait and see how this turns out. But it seems like what happened is the man collapsed on the field. He very likely had no pulse. There are reports of that. I can't say anything for certain. And I don't think anyone is benefited by believing the news stories that we've heard so far. They're not just going to come out and tell us the truth. If he died specifically from the vaccine, if it was not commotio cordis, I'm not even sure if they're able to tell the difference. So this is one of those stories that just might settle in and there's going to be people on both sides of it. But it seems like one of those issues that's going to be waking people up no matter what. There's just no way to fully avoid the conversation about whether or not the experimental gene therapy that these young men were coerced into taking had some effect on the outcome. And the problem with taking the position that most communists and normies are taking is that it only takes one more incident at that point to then wipe away their whole house of cards because the position they're taking is that it cannot be the thing that you absolutely can't rule out. And they're not letting anyone talk about it. Of course, there is a massive emotional disincentive to talk about the fact that this could indeed be vaccine related. You're just not allowed to say it. You're being insensitive. Hey, the man died. You can't talk about that. Why are you politicizing this incident? They're going to say things like that. You will be punished emotionally if you speak the truth about this issue. They just want to say it's this one thing. It's not the other thing. And you're an evil person for ever even bringing it up. 
We have to wait and see what happened, but not about this other thing that we definitely, definitely know did not happen. There's no way it could happen. If you talk about it ever again, you're going to be in trouble. And they'll try that. But the conversation is unavoidable. And like I said, all it takes is one more incident in the future. And not only do these people look wrong about both events, they also look totally irresponsible because the position they've taken throughout this entire time is that the vaccine is very safe and effective. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. And there's not a single incident in the entire world where something has gone wrong. And okay, fine. There are some incidents here and there, but they're so rare and so mild. And by and large, billions and billions of people have been just fine. Well, we know all that's not true. And their position has always been untenable. As the evidence continues to mount on our side, it eventually becomes unavoidable. And we might have reached that point last night. If it turns out that we didn't and the conversation goes on a little longer in our culture and another similar incident happens, their whole thing is toast. And they're going to be extra irresponsible for not having taken it seriously earlier. And you could begin to see this dynamic already playing out last night on TV. They had the announcers in the stadium. They had the uh, halftime crew in the studio. And usually in incidents of major player injuries in the NFL, and I say this as a person who has watched the NFL for 35 years now, they usually just stay with the announcers in the stadium, wait for the man to be moved out of the stadium, usually on a stretcher into an ambulance, rush to the hospital and the players keep on playing. And as unfortunate as these awful incidents are, football is a violent sport and the players playing realize that when they decide that they want to be professional football players on my old, old podcast that I had many years ago, a friend of mine from Los Angeles, a linebacker who played for the Cincinnati Bengals, Keith Rivers was a guest and we talked about injuries in football. And one of the reasons that he stepped away from the game at a young age was because there was so much performance enhancement going on in the NFL that people were faster and larger and stronger than they would be otherwise, which means that the chances for a career ending injury go up and up and up. And a lot of guys who are responsible and want to do things in their lives after their football careers end, they have to make that decision. Is this worth it when I know that there is a chance that my life will be permanently changed by the physical and violent nature of American football? But the reaction by the TV crew and the NFL to what happened on the field last night was very unusual. They sent the broadcast back to the halftime studio, who then sent it back to the stadium, who then sent it back to the studio. And they were all just basically saying the same things. Initially, they were saying how concerned they were for the player, which is totally natural. And they were praying for him. All that totally natural. They were wondering about how the teammates were reacting to it. And then they kind of got past that and began suggesting that the game must be postponed and must be canceled. And it's the only right thing to do as if they were trying to convince the audience at home, first of all, that the game was definitely going to be canceled, but also that it was absolutely the right thing to do. And no other outcome could even be considered based on the fact that the players weren't going to feel comfortable playing the game. 
And I'm not trying to say that that wasn't the right decision or that the players weren't feeling really messed up about what they had just witnessed. It's quite possible they just saw a fellow football player essentially die on the field. That's going to shake anybody up, even the genuinely tough guys in the NFL. But the announcers at the game and in the studio basically took the same position that normies on Twitter took, which again is natural because you're watching a live telecast, but it's some brand of controlled speech. And you could tell they had no idea what to say about anything. They said they weren't willing to speculate about anything, but they made a consistent effort to focus on the fact that it was the hit that caused DeMar Hamlin to collapse to the field. It had to be something having to do with the hit and it couldn't be anything else. Now, is it commotio cordis, which includes the hit and something else? Absolutely could be. We got to wait and find out. But the fact that the NFL was pushing the announcers in the game and in the studio to focus on the hit tells you about how vulnerable the NFL is, how vulnerable the pharma companies are, how vulnerable the media industry is. No one could say that it might have something to do with the experimental gene therapy that we know causes heart problems. So is it just an extraordinarily rare condition resulting from the hit and the exact way the hit was leveled? Or is it possible that Hamlin had some sort of undiagnosed and asymptomatic myocarditis or other issue having to do with his heart as a result of the vaccine? If you're saying that's not possible, it's pretty clear what you're doing and what you're doing is defending the vaccine. And you can't be doing that if you're one of the people who says this shouldn't be politicized and we shouldn't jump to conclusions. That's basically just the regime and their talking heads and the propaganda media and the corporate talking heads. And then all of the child brains who run around repeating the slogans, changing the rules on conversation for everyone else. They're saying we have access to talk about everything. You all have access to talk about everything except the vaccine. If you talk about the vaccine, you're politicizing it. But us refusing to allow you to talk about the vaccine is not politicizing it. And that's the sort of thing you can do when you have a propaganda regime and a censorship regime and the powerful institutions that are all involved in this situation lining up on the same side of an issue to control the public conversation by implementing an emotional disincentive structure for even considering that Perhaps the injection that these men were coerced into taking that does cause heart problems may have caused a heart problem. So sadly, DeMar Hamlin's prognosis is not looking good. We have seen headlines saying he will not make a full recovery. And that's what you might expect considering what happened and the time frame for treatment and everything else. So we'll see how that situation plays out over the next few days. The NFL has some difficult decisions to make in terms of their schedule. And it's going to be very strange if the NFL continues their season 
and does what they've been doing for the entire season, which is roll vaccine commercials and other pharma product commercials throughout their schedule. Every game you watch, pharma commercial, pharma commercial, pharma commercial. And then, of course, you get those uh, commercials about how the progressives are going to take Jesus back, that organization he gets us. I did an episode on that in September. And then this weekend, they stepped it up with a really reprehensible commercial by apparently the Robert Kraft Foundation. He's the owner of the New England Patriots. But the commercial basically presented itself as against Jewish hate from the perspective of the Jewish. The commercial said the people who hate us for being Jewish hate you for being black, for being Asian, for being gay. They use their words to divide us, but you know what they would hate even more? If we use them to unite us. Perfectly woke. And then, of course, it streams a bunch of hashtags like Stop Jewish Hate. And they listed other religions, including Christian and atheist. And they ran through a list of groups that they are declaring have hate movements going against them. Now, what was conspicuously not on the list was white. Anti-white hate is the most predominant hate within our popular culture. Now, you might say white people are not the biggest targets of racism in society, like out in your everyday life. And I would say, yeah, fine, that might well be true. But in terms of our popular culture, in terms of what the media is saying, what is approved of on legacy big tech platforms, what is propagandized to us in our scripted television and movies. There is a massive anti-white hate campaign right out in everyone's face. And so it's no surprise that white Americans, white people were not mentioned in this commercial. And so when they say they use their words to divide us, they hate us because we're Jewish, just like they hate you because you're black or Asian or gay. Who is the they they're referring to? The they they're referring to is pretty obviously white people. Maybe it's a subset of white people. Maybe it's just those dangerous MAGA extremists and conspiracy theorists and QAnons and anti-vaxxers and climate deniers. Maybe they're the ones that hate Jewish people and black people and Asian people and gay people. But you can't make an anti-hate commercial while leaving out one particular group and blaming that group or a subset of that group for all the hate they're trying to stop. They literally said they use their words to divide us. Let's use them to unite us. Well, how divisive is it to target one race and say or a subset of that race because, you know, hashtag not all white people, that those are the people hating everybody else. That is so divisive. I mean, this commercial is a commercial for the hate movement on TV played during an NFL game. If it was any other race and this commercial was put out by Christians, for instance, I was going to say any other religious group, but of course, you can imagine the 
public conversation accepting this commercial if it was produced by Muslims. But if the roles had been reversed, absolutely no one would be okay with this. Now, I think that white people are basically conditioned by culture in America at this point to simply accept when there are hate movements being waged against them because we have all been taught to accept this vicarious guilt, this guilt by proxy for something that someone else's ancestors with a similar skin color did to somebody else's ancestors with a different skin color. Therefore, we have to accept when hate campaigns, when hate movements are acting against us. At this point, it should be fairly undeniable to most people what's actually happening here. The people saying don't divide us and stop hate are specifically and intentionally dividing us and saying this is the group that hates everyone else. So it's okay to hate them. Now, we are told, of course, by our culture and our public conversation that the way you respond to hate movements is with a pride movement. Now, I am not suggesting a white pride movement, but we can take pride in a few things that might counteract this hate movement. One of them being our identity as American citizens, America, the America that we have been raised in and been taught to value is an American melting pot, a country that is largely built up of people whose families immigrated here within the last few centuries. And people moved here to find a better life in a freer society where their individual abilities could shine through and they could create a better life for themselves and the next generations of their family to follow. That's something we can be proud of. We can be proud of the fact that America is a melting pot and what unites us is our American values. We can be proud of that. We can push that movement forward. We can say that we believe our founding principles are worth preserving, even if they're not always reflected in our society or in our government, even if the country has its flaws and terrible things have happened here to certain people over time, almost always by Democrats. But we can have some pride in our American values and our American lifestyles. America has built a wonderful culture where millions of people live valuable lives that they themselves value, where they pursue their ambitions and their desires and their goals. And for most of our history, have had some opportunity to achieve them. We can be proud of that. We can be proud of rational decision making. For instance, we can be proud of the fact that when the experimental gene therapy was offered to us, this life or death decision that we were about to confront, we actually went out and considered things like life and death and looked at both sides of the issue and said to ourselves, that just doesn't feel right. And we had the independence to be able to act ourselves in our own best interests. We can be proud of our ability to do that. We can also be proud of the fact that we are supporting a movement that is based on human liberty instead of the opposite. The people who tell us that we are the hateful ones, whether it's the people who made this commercial. And by the way, that doesn't mean the Jews. It doesn't mean all Jews. It means that there was a particular advocacy group that put together this ad and funded it and put it on television. 
people like that are not trying to unite anyone. They are trying to divide. That is a problem. I'm also talking about the regime at large and all of the politicians representing that regime, the officials around the country, the people in the powerful institutions that have controlled our culture in many ways. The regime does not care about human liberty and nothing could ever be more obvious. Their goals are explicitly authoritarian. The only way they get away with implementing any of it is because they have had the force of the institutions and the public conversation to convince people that their position is right. But I cannot name a single regime position that actually pushes human liberty to the forefront. And anytime they even pretend to, they're doing so on the basis of claiming that they are going to liberate people from a condition that their form of government has already opposed on those people. Like when they tried to claim that the vaccine could give you freedom. The vaccine is going to allow you to travel. It's going to allow you to go to stores and concerts and sporting events. And then you will be free. But free on their conditions is not free. That's the entire point. So we can and should be proud of human liberty. You cannot ever let this sort of thing back you down from speaking. If you do not hold hate in your heart, then you are not a hateful person. If other people are accusing you of being a hateful person while knowing you have no hate in your heart, those are the hateful people. Those are the bad people. And you can never, ever back down to these sorts of people. Just like you should never back down with people pretending that there's no way the vaccine could have had anything to do with DeMar Hamlin's very sad collapse on the field last night during Monday Night Football. Does this commercial, though, push the awakening forward or does it hinder it? I don't know. I would tend to think that most people who watch this are probably not enjoying it so much anymore. This sort of thing made them feel very empowered during that whole George Floyd thing, during the summer of love from BLM and Antifa as they rioted across the nation. But the incentives have changed around social credit for going along with these woke agendas and using the hashtags and pretending that the source of all problems in the world is white people and their hatred for everyone else. But that one's a little murky. What's not murky is what happened on the field last night. That is going to wake some people up. It is unavoidable. And while these upheavals are uncomfortable and a little disturbing, a little worrying, they are also the sorts of things that enable people to take a stand on a side they haven't stood on for so many of these issues, especially over the last few years. A lot of the people, even the ones repeating the slogans all the time, still held positions in the past, principled positions that they have been detached from. But the sense they made of those principled positions in their past, that still exists within them. And once you can connect that, the force of their prior position when they weren't detached from reality actually can allow them to move beyond the repetition of these slogans. And while on another day, this might be the only issue that's grabbing any headlines, it won't be and can't be today because the vote for the speaker 
of the House of Representatives is ongoing as we speak. I watched the first round earlier. John and Brian were covering it on Badlands. And the first round ended without a winner. McCarthy did not secure enough votes from Republicans to become the Speaker of the House. So they broke for a little bit, reset, and came back for another round of voting that also ended with no winner. In the first round, 18, if I recall, Republicans voted for someone other than Kevin McCarthy. And in the second round, 19 Republicans voted for someone other than Kevin McCarthy. All 19 of those votes went to Jim Jordan. So McCarthy's not having a great day. Obviously, there's not a whole lot of point in speculating right now about what's going to happen because the process is already playing out. By the end of today, though, we're going to know a whole lot more about a lot of congressmen ostensibly on our side, I would imagine. And the way things are going is pretty interesting because some of the people you'd expect to be those contesting McCarthy's speakership are supporting him, like Marjorie Taylor Greene and to this point, Jim Jordan. And on the other side, you've got people like Matt Gates who are taking the never Kevin position. There's no way they are going to vote for Kevin McCarthy as speaker, no matter how many rounds this goes. You have to imagine that there are people who know what the outcome of this is going to be and have created a plan for every possible scenario as we go through these rounds. But it's being presented to us like a sporting event where the clock starts at the beginning of the votes for each round and it goes till the end of the votes for each round. And during that time, the outcome is totally in doubt. We just have to see where it goes. Each vote comes in. We're like, oh, that's one for us. Thank goodness. Oh, my God, that's one for Hakeem Jeffries. Oh, no. And it's a bit silly to be viewing this in that way, particularly when the names are being read off alphabetically. Is someone really changing their mind midway? I kind of doubt it. So Every time they tell us what the next vote is going to look like and there are new nominations each round, a new branch blooms on the tree of possibilities. And at some point, you got to wonder if a Donald Trump gets nominated or a Liz Cheney gets nominated. In the first round, someone cast a vote for Lee Zeldin, and he is not currently sitting as a member of Congress. So that would be someone outside the body being named speaker and then coming in. So for anyone who had their doubts about whether or not that's possible, you can probably let go of that. It is possible. It doesn't mean that we're going to see it, but it's possible. The Daily Mail's been covering this today, and they have a bit of the history on it. The last speaker to go beyond the first ballot was in 1923, when members took nine tries to name Frederick Gillette from Massachusetts to the position. Or maybe it's Gillette. The all-time record for the duration of the speaker vote was in the mid-1850s, when lawmakers took almost two months and 133 ballots before picking Nathaniel Banks, also of Massachusetts. So historical precedent indicates this could actually be a long and extended process. Now, I don't think that that's likely, but what leads me to that opinion is only that I assume something is already happening that has been put in place. There are plans upon plans upon plans about how this thing's going to go. And we're going to see it go one of those ways, which probably doesn't include a two month long wait 
to find out who becomes speaker. And at this point, I can't say I know too much about what that would look like or what the Congress would be able to do during that period. In the House's 234-year history, 14 speaker votes have required multiple ballots, according to the Washington Post. With the rise of the two-party system, only two have come after 1856. And that's interesting. I feel like I would like to see more of these things. I would like to see the process play out in public over and over again on just about everything so that everyone in the country could actually see it happen and know for themselves as they watch it. Oh, that's how this works. Oh, these are the possibilities. These are the ways this thing can play out. When there's just one ballot and just one vote and the entire party lines up behind a single candidate and all of this has been decided in the back rooms prior to the event, then they're all basically able to do what normies do when they try to ignore an issue. They basically say, oh, well, everybody else was wrong in the same way as me. And I'm not a fan of the people's elected representatives having the opportunity to do that. I'm glad that they're out there standing up, casting their vote in public so that everybody can see who stands where. And by the way, I don't think that we're through this process. I don't think at this point that everyone who has voted against McCarthy on the Republican side is a good guy or that everybody who has voted for McCarthy on the Republican side is a bad guy. Remember, Donald Trump endorsed Kevin McCarthy to be the next speaker. He said he deserves a shot. And that endorsement confused a lot of people, but I was fine with it. I don't expect Donald Trump to come out and tell us what to do all the time and what other people should do all the time. He endorsed Kevin McCarthy for his own reasons, which may well simply be optics. If he wants someone other than Kevin McCarthy to wind up being speaker, it's probably easier for that to happen if Donald Trump isn't out there advertising who he really wants as speaker or proposing himself for that role, because you know what the reaction would be in the media on Twitter. People would go crazy. They would say, oh, it can't be that guy. If Donald Trump suggested Jim Jordan, for instance, Jim Jordan would have been subjected to six, seven weeks of the media trying to tear him down and destroy him. And certainly if Donald Trump suggested himself for Speaker of the House, we would have gotten six or seven or eight weeks. I don't know how many weeks it's been. It's been something like that of people in the mainstream freaking out and talking about how anything that could potentially make Donald Trump Speaker of the House constituted some form of coup, and they would try to delegitimize the entire thing for the country. They would make that a massive issue. And so obviously, I don't know exactly what Trump wants. Maybe he just sincerely wants Kevin McCarthy and thinks he needs Kevin McCarthy in that position. Totally possible. But it's also possible that if he wants someone other than Kevin McCarthy, his endorsement of Kevin McCarthy, him taking his hands off the process and saying, hey, if this gets messed up, it's not because I did it. So you all can deal with that. You all figure it out. Blame whoever you want for all these situations. But it's not me. Oh, it's the MAGA people in Congress. Well, not all the MAGA people are lined up behind my choice from McCarthy. Some of them are on the other side. Are you just going to blame them? Well, they're the ones who were just elected as part of this incoming MAGA movement. So it's possible from an optical standpoint for what works 
with the ultimate goal that Donald Trump endorsing McCarthy was Donald Trump diffusing some of these little bombs that could have been set up to undermine whatever the ultimate goal really is. And again, we just have to let it play out and see what happens. But here's another little wrinkle from the Daily Mail. The House can change the election rules, allowing a simple majority of votes to become the speaker. But this could backfire for the Republicans since Representative Hakeem Jeffries could win a majority vote, meaning the House and Senate would both be under Democratic control, a highly unlikely scenario. That's one of those scenarios that seems virtually impossible. They're not going to create an opportunity for the Democrats to just win and get Hakeem Jeffries as speaker to follow Nancy Pelosi. It's almost impossible to imagine any Republicans crossing over to do that. I've talked about on the show before, though, that it is possible that a Republican, for instance, or it could be a Democrat, but I doubt it. But a Republican like David Valdeo in California, who voted for Trump's impeachment during the J6 impeachment hoax, could nominate someone like Liz Cheney and maybe get a few Republicans on board with that. And then maybe the Democrats all go out and they decide to vote for Liz Cheney because Liz Cheney is the new star of the Democrat establishment because she lent legitimacy to the sham J6 committee. Again, I don't think that's likely, but I don't really think that Trump as speaker is likely either. But hey, I don't know. Maybe it can happen. Cheney, I think is really unlikely. Hakeem Jeffries seems almost impossible. Trump, unlikely. So someone else who's already been mentioned, maybe. Is it Kevin McCarthy? I don't see a possibility for that now. It certainly doesn't seem like it. Could it be Jim Jordan? Could it be Andy Biggs? Could it be Jim Banks? I heard a vote cast for Jim Banks. And then we got a vote for Lee Zeldin. Mike Davis from the Article 3 Project was on War Room today. He thought it would ultimately end up being Steve Scalise. But again, who knows? We're just going to have to let the process play out. The Daily Mail finishes up their little piece. Since the House leadership election outcome is not a done deal, a speaker could be elected today after multiple attempts, delayed for days or weeks, or Congress could change the rules in order to get a simple majority. Until a speaker is elected, Cheryl Lynn Johnson, the clerk of the United States House of Representatives and Pelosi appointee, will preside over the lower chamber. The outgoing speaker will usually join the successor at the speaker's chair, where they will pass the gavel as a nod to the peaceful transition of power from one party leader to another. This time around, that will be Pelosi, the California Democrat who held the gavel for the last four years. And so speaking of the illegitimate and total sham January 6th committee, they released a bunch of the testimony from the committee on Friday afternoon. And I spent some of Friday evening and a chunk of Saturday going through Cash Patel's testimony to the January 6th committee. And there was a lot of really interesting stuff in there. And so it took a while to go through, but I went and put together a long Twitter thread going through the testimony, screenshotting parts I found interesting, leaving some comments here and there. You can find that in the info stream, of course. Maybe I'll post it again today or add it to the links in the episode notes. But it's definitely worth going through because if you read that, there will be no doubt in your mind 
that the January 6th committee is a complete and total sham. For much of the testimony, they did not even focus on anything having to do with January 6th. Now, they put this committee together outside of the House rules, by the way. They're supposed to allow the Republican minority leader who was at the time, Kevin McCarthy, to name the members from his party for the committee. Nancy Pelosi just simply said no and chose Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. The committee, in essence, is not legitimate, but they were tasked with figuring out what happened to cause the very violent insurrection and then figure out what they could do about it. When a congressional committee is put together, they're not meant to go out and investigate for crimes. Their committees are supposed to be formed with a specific legislative purpose And they're tasked with gathering information and listening to witnesses in order to guide them toward future legislation to fix the problem as it's laid out. This is not what they did. They spent a lot of time probing issues that had virtually nothing to do with January 6th, but do hint at their concern about what else was going on in the background. What was Donald Trump doing and thinking throughout that period between the illegitimate 2020 election and the illegitimate inauguration. They are very, very concerned about what was happening in the background during that period. So I'm going to share Cash Patel's opening statement first. And he says, members of the select committee, good afternoon. I am here today because I am willing and able to share with you and the American people the truth about the events of January 6th, including the Department of Defense's preparation for and response to the unrest at the Capitol. I am and will remain proud of my 16 years in public service, including during the Trump administration. Let me say unequivocally that I have no information about and never would have participated in any attempt to improperly maintain power following the conclusion of President Trump's term. I'm also proud to have been the first person of color to serve in several of the positions that I held in government. I want to state for the record that I'm here voluntarily and the subpoena served on me on September 24th was not necessary to secure my appearance. The committee could have contacted me privately and asked me to voluntarily provide information as it has done for dozens, if not hundreds of other witnesses. Instead, I first learned that I had been issued a subpoena without prior reach from the committee when members of the media contacted me on the evening of September 23rd on my personal cell phone, I had still yet to be served with a subpoena or any notice of it. So he didn't get the subpoena before finding out he had been subpoenaed, which means that the committee or someone around the committee leaked to the media that Cash Patel was being subpoenaed and knew before Cash Patel knew. And this is a common thing that we've seen You can guess that this might have come somehow through Adam Schiff. I was subsequently the victim of vile, racist and physically threatening messages to quote some pack your effing carpet bag and start swimming. You effing treasonous bitch. America is going to chew you up and they'll slice that effing sand monkey neck of yours in prison on day one. They always need a couple token N-words to use. We may even be able to execute you bastards. Cut your effing head off the way they do in your country. You are a traitor and will pay. 
end quote. And I think it's good that Cash Patel included this in the testimony. We're talking about a Democratic Party who consistently says they're getting death threats all the time from everywhere about everything, always, of course, from white people, most notably white supremacists. But like everything else, the Democrats hold absolutely no moral high ground on this whatsoever. Patel wrote, these threats have been reported to the FBI and marked as exhibit, our exhibit one, for entry into the record. I was therefore extremely upset when, after these threats of violence were made known to the committee, Representative Schiff personally attacked me in an October 14th New York Times podcast as a, quote, evil zealot, end quote, and part of a group, quote, unscrupulous, end quote, advisors. These inflammatory remarks caused me to question whether I could or would receive a fair hearing before this committee. Nevertheless, my attorneys communicated my continued willingness to appear and answer your questions. On October 19th, they were told that I had been subpoenaed because the committee had incorrectly assumed that I would not be cooperative. During that meeting, committee staff expressly reclassified me as a cooperative witness and committed to withdrawing the subpoena in connection with my agreement to appear for a voluntary interview. On November 20th, and by the way, this is of 2021. This is his testimony from December 2021. It has been over a year since he gave this testimony. So on November 20th, the committee abruptly reversed course. During a call on November 20th, staff apologized for misleading my lawyers while insisting that I appear under subpoena. So he was going to appear anyway. They were going to get rid of the subpoena and close the subpoena because he was coming voluntarily. And then they decided that that's not going to work. He still has to come as a result of our subpoena. So we're going to leave that subpoena in place. The committee then showed extreme reluctance when we tried to find a mutually agreeable date for testimony this week. On Monday, December 6th, our final preparations were disrupted when we were made aware that the committee had been provided 3,000 additional pages of DOD documents that we were first able to access on Tuesday, just two days ago. Additionally, among the exhibits transmitted to my team by the committee on Monday were several documents to which I had not previously been given access. So the committee makes it so Cash Patel has virtually no access to all these documents that they are including on their side and that they could ask questions about during his testimony. He says, much of what has transpired to date, including but not limited to those events I've just described, lead me to question the fundamental fairness of these proceedings. Nevertheless, I'm here of my own volition and plan to answer your questions to the best of my ability. As a former congressional senior staffer, I understand and appreciate the role of this body and the value of congressional oversight. However, to provide additional context uh, in the event I am unable to answer any of your questions, I wanted to highlight some concerns I have about the proceedings today. The events about which you are inquiring today occurred 11 months ago or more. I do not, as I sit here today, have a clear recollection of these specifics of that period of time and do not want to speculate or guess when answering your questions. I know that the committee respects my need to ensure that my answers are completely accurate. As you know, I am no longer a United States government employee and do not have access to my own government communications or records that relate to your questions to the extent that such records exist. 
DOD has made available to us certain documents that it has produced to the committee, and these documents likely represent just a small fraction of the official records relevant to the topics you have indicated you wish to discuss. My attorneys have requested your assistance in facilitating access to additional records. Without such access, my recollection may be particularly limited. As you know, I have a deep background in national security matters. My priority has always been the national security of the United States. I believe that many of the communications, records, and facts related to certain lines of inquiry are classified. Specifically, many matters relating to defense, intelligence, and foreign policy, including communications with and among senior White House officials about such matters, are classified. To date, neither I nor my attorneys have been cleared to review or provided with any access to classified information related to this inquiry. Indeed, to the extent that I have knowledge of classified information relevant to this inquiry, I am unable to share or discuss it with my attorneys. As I'm sure you will understand, I must err on the side of protecting classified information and thus may not be able to answer certain questions that appear to call for a classified answer. The select committee was authorized by House Resolution 503. Pursuant to section four thereof, the committee's functions are to quote, investigate the facts, circumstances, and causes relating to the domestic terrorist attack on the Capitol, identify, review, and evaluate the causes of, and the lessons learned from the domestic terror attack on the Capitol and issue a final report to the house containing findings, conclusions, and recommendations for corrective measures End quote. So that is what they are tasked with. They do not, under those parameters, get to simply ask all their witnesses whatever questions they want and expect for those witnesses to have to answer all of their questions. So naturally, he's not going to answer questions about matters that involve classified information, and he's also not required to answer questions that fall outside the scope of what the committee is tasked to investigate for a legislative purpose. Likewise, he is not required to answer questions that may pierce executive privilege. And he mentions all of these things throughout the testimony as the committee does continue asking questions about unrelated matters and attempting to pierce executive privilege and asking questions about matters that concern classified information. He writes, given the legislative purpose set forth in HR 503, I was therefore astounded by some of the potential lines of inquiry, many expressly derived, according to staff, from books such as Bob Woodward and Robert Costa's Peril that were shared with my attorneys before today's deposition. These topics include but are not limited to personnel changes at DOD in November 2020, two months before January 6th, my potential appointments to CIA and or FBI, a purported directive about withdrawal from Somalia and Afghanistan. So he's saying these topics and the way they're being presented to me do not seem to support your legislative purpose. You're going to be asking me questions about a book written on the very violent insurrection by Bob Woodward and Robert Costa to deep state mainstream media propaganda hacks. Really? And you're going to ask questions about whether or not I was going to be appointed as director of the CIA or director of the FBI, something totally speculative, even to Cash Patel. But the January 6th committee went ahead and asked about them. And for some reason, they focused 
a large block of their questioning on a this purported directive in order that they believe to be improper given by Donald Trump about the withdrawal from Somalia and Afghanistan. They tried over and over and over again to pry for more information and also get Cash Patel to admit in some way, even an indirect way, that Donald Trump had delivered improper orders so that they could go back and get Donald Trump. Most of what this testimony amounted to was an attempt to fortify a mainstream media narrative about what happened on January 6th. While that mainstream media narrative supports the actions of these members of Congress, the J6 committee and the regime politicians at large and what they did that had to do with January 6th, all based on this mainstream media book written by hacks like Woodward and Costa. And the funny thing is that Bob Woodward is still believed to be this legend who goes out and speaks truth to power and holds the powerful accountable as the media is supposed to do in the grand vision of what journalism is all about. But you can also look at it as Bob Woodward helped to bring down a duly elected president on behalf of the regime. And that is totally and completely true, but doesn't really paint him as the legend that the mainstream media wants us to believe he is. Patel writes, although I am here voluntarily to answer as many questions as possible, I request the committee explain how questions on topics with no discernible connection to House Resolution 503 serve a, quote, valid legislative purpose, end quote, as required by Supreme Court precedent. Although I was a DOD official on January 6th, I understand the committee may wish to ask me about events that occurred while I was a senior White House official at the National Security Council, as well as about directed communications I may have had with the president and some of his most senior advisors. I am aware President Trump has initiated litigation, which is currently ongoing, to block the release of certain records from the National Archives and could take similar action with respect to the testimony of myself and others. Now, that is very interesting. The National Archives. You might remember that the Mar-a-Lago raid, we are told, was about seizing documents from Donald Trump that the National Archives did not have access to. You have to wonder if the J6 committee thought they could get these documents and include them in their work, in their grand television display that they were producing for the American people. And again, they spend a lot of the questioning period attempting to set up moments where something is going to be revealed as wrong or irresponsible on Trump's behalf, something that they can take and broadcast on the TV show to tell America, see, the media was right the whole time. Donald Trump was trying to take over the government the entire time. He incited an insurrection and all of this is his fault. He continues. To the extent the committee's questions today implicate core executive privilege concerns, I'm committed to trying to expeditiously resolve any issues, including by consulting with representatives of the current and former president if necessary. However, I want to state for the record my serious concerns about how the committee's attempts to bulldoze any and all claims of executive privilege, which is virtually unprecedented. 
infringes on the separation of powers and will likely have a negative long term consequence of the effective functioning of the executive branch. And that seems to be a subtle hint to the idea that this sort of thing could come back to bite them. Because some, including in this room or on video, have mistakenly claimed that I was unqualified for the positions I held or was considered for, I want to briefly describe my career up to and including my service in the Trump administration. I've devoted the vast majority of my professional career to public service and the protection of American lives and liberties. I started my legal career as a state public defender, where I safeguarded the rights of individuals charged with serious criminal offenses, standing for due process. I then became an assistant federal public defender, representing individuals charged with, among other things, complex international and national security related crimes that included narco trafficking, arms, human smuggling, and large scale fraud. During the Obama administration, I joined the Justice Department's National Security Division, where I led investigations and oversaw prosecutions of terrorists aligned with Al Qaeda and other terrorist groups. I also served as DOJ's liaison to Joint Special Operation Command, where I worked closely with our nation's most elite and effective counterterrorism units. In 2019, I joined the National Security Council, where I held several positions and eventually served as Deputy Assistant to the President, Senior Director for Counterterrorism. In early 2020, I was asked to serve on detail as the principal deputy to the acting director of national intelligence, whom I assisted in leading 17 intelligence community agencies. I also worked to prioritize the collection of intelligence to focus on hard targets and global threats. In November of 2020, I was asked to serve as chief of staff at the Department of Defense and thereby became a senior member of a leadership team responsible for, among other things, a budget over $700 billion and nearly 3 million employees. It was one of the greatest honors of my life to be able to serve the American people in this capacity. My time at DOD was extremely eventful. In addition to the matters we will discuss today, I was deeply involved in, and most of my time was devoted to, senior level operational decisions to counter our adversaries around the globe. With respect to the events surrounding unrest at the Capitol, I supported the acting secretary in my role as his chief of staff. Additionally, I directed the creation of a timeline that my lawyers have marked as Exhibit 2. This timeline was created and signed off by the Office of Secretary of Defense, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Secretary of the Army, and other sections within the Department of Defense. Although I look forward to discussing these events in detail, I would like to make three things clear at the outset. One, the actions the DOD took before January 6th, 2021, to prepare for the planned protest in Washington, D.C. on January 5th and 6th, 2021, were appropriate supported by requirements, consistent with the DOD's roles and responsibilities, and compliant with laws, regulations, and other applicable guidance. Two, the DOD's actions to respond to the United States Capitol Police request for assistance on January 6th, 2021, were appropriate, supported by requirements, consistent with the DOD's roles and responsibilities, and compliant with the laws, regulations, and other applicable guidance. And three, DOD officials did not delay or obstruct the DOD's response to the United States Capitol Police request for assistance on January 6th, 2021. These are not just my words, but in fact, the findings of the DOD's independent inspector general under President Biden's administration. <laughs> 
The IG's November 16th, 2021 report has been marked as exhibit three. So that's kind of a lot. He lays out what problems he has with the committee's investigation in the first place. The fact that they are going to attempt to pierce executive privilege. They're going to ask questions unrelated to the events at the Capitol on January 6th. And they failed to provide numerous records that they intend to ask about while also relying on a book that isn't required to have any basis in truth. It's essentially just hearsay. It's what reporters have said. Other people said what reporters have reported. Doesn't matter what their sources are, whether or not they can back them up with evidence. They're just going by what was in that book. And that book is not some version of objective truth. Throughout his testimony, Cash Patel makes very clear that the president had made available National Guard troops, not just in Washington, D.C., but around the country for January 6th, 10,000 to 20,000 National Guard troops. Nancy Pelosi and Muriel Bowser declined to have those troops there at the Capitol. And Cash Patel discusses how there were other National Guard related operations going on on January 6th. He makes it clear that Trump attempted to make these troops available if they were needed. Pelosi and Bowser decided, nope, we're concerned about the optics, so we're just going to skip it. Now, throughout this testimony, they redact the names of the members of the committee who are asking questions of Cash Patel. And so we don't really know who's asking the individual questions. And throughout the testimony, it is just listed as Q and A. And Cash Patel is A, the answer from the witness. So one of the questions. So the topic of 10,000 to 20,000 troops being potentially on the streets the next day or a couple of days later, kind of a big deal, right? Cash responds. So just to clarify, it's 10,000 to 20,000 across America. It was an authorization for anybody if there was civil unrest anywhere. And that's a bit of a twist to what I think is our common understanding, or it was certainly my understanding. The committee asks extensively about what effect the response to the BLM Antifa riots throughout 2020 had in discussions about January 6th, 2021, and specifically the incident at Lafayette Park. And it's hard to say exactly what they were getting at, but the line of questioning didn't seem all that natural. In Patel's answers, he makes it very clear that they went by the book on everything around that day and in general. And the questioning becomes really strange because the questioners are asking questions that all have to do with the media narrative of the day's events and not the facts of the day's events. They want the media narratives confirmed. They're sure that all these very bad things happened. There's no proof of any of those things, of course, but they're sure that they happened because of this book or because reporting that they saw on television. And so they're trying to support those stories throughout this. And Cash Patel just keeps shooting them down again and again and again. And throughout the entire time, they are asking him questions that they're not supposed to be asking. And he consistently notes to them, this is a matter of executive privilege. I want that very clear for the record. Despite that, I will attempt to answer this in the best way I can. Or this matter clearly has nothing to do with the stated purpose of this committee. 
Despite that, I'll attempt to answer your question to the best of my ability. There was an interesting section there about the GSA memo, the memo that on November 23rd, 2020, officially opened up the office and made access available to the incoming illegitimate Biden administration so that the transition could actually begin. If you remember back then, there was a lot of concern about whether or not Donald Trump would go along with the peaceful transition of power. And they became intensely worried about that until the GSA actually put out their memo. But there was no delay in that process at all. Once again, they just did it by the book. And the TV doesn't like when things are done by the book. The TV likes when things are done in accordance with what the TV wants. As I said, there was an extensive discussion about a memo or order that they thought was improper having to do with the withdrawal from Afghanistan and Somalia. And they were asking questions even about people like Colonel Douglas McGregor. And Patel just repeats over and over again that they don't have the memo. He doesn't know what memo they're talking about. They're asking about a memo that Mark Milley said exists. But they did not ask Millie to get them that memo. So they don't have the memo. So Cash doesn't have the memo. No one has the memo, but they keep asking question after question after question about it. One of Cash's answers was pretty funny, actually. He said, you keep characterizing it as an order or whatever. I don't know what you're talking about. Neither do you because you haven't seen it. And I don't recall seeing it. But in a situation where an improper, unlawful order was even discussed, none of us would have executed it because that's not who we are and what we signed up for. And on this occasion, you asked, did I recall other times when I was a chief of staff at DOD? I don't recall other times that discussion like that came up. So they're asking questions that no one has the ability to legitimately answer because the evidence that they're basing their questions on doesn't exist. Eventually, it becomes totally clear that Cash Patel is much smarter than these members of the Sham J6 committee, and he also has the advantage of telling the truth and relying on evidence, evidence that the J6 committee cannot dispute because they don't have evidence of their own. They're going by news articles and books and rumors. He talks at length about how Biden officials simply did not respond to their communications during the transition period. And then it was turned around by the media and the media told people that it was the Trump side who wasn't communicating and wasn't helping in the transition. They were reaching out to Biden officials and getting no response. The committee was intensely interested in whether or not Donald Trump had contemplated removing CIA Director Gina Haspel or FBI Director Chris Ray, and replacing either of them with Cash Patel. And Cash Patel, of course, says the president is able to do what he wants. We had discussions. Nothing came of it. That's it. But hey, also, this has absolutely nothing to do with January 6th. So why are you attempting to pry into this? They even asked questions about the day Mike Lindell visited the White House. And there's that picture of him holding uh, like a coffee cup and a piece of paper. And on that piece of paper, it says something about Cash Patel as director of CIA. 
And it's funny because so many of their lines of questioning involve situations that we were told were topics of conspiracy theories, not things that really happened and really mattered. It was all stuff that was illegitimate and should be ignored, but they weren't ignoring it. And you have to start wondering why they even asked about Italy gate where Arturo D'Elia and Leonardo SPI, if I'm remembering correctly about their name, the whole satellite thing, the infiltration of the voting machines and the idea that the election was hacked partially from Italy. They asked questions about that, and they also asked if Ezra Cohen Watnick himself had been involved somehow on that Italy gate issue. Again, this is something that we were told is a total and complete conspiracy theory. They actually asked Cash Patel for access to his personal cell phone and list of contacts and who he was in contact with. And after Cash Patel masterfully wound his way through all of this nonsense, by the end of it, the J6 committee still refused to withdraw their subpoena and say that it was closed because they wanted to hold that power over him where they could just demand that he came back at any time. The whole thing was just so improper and so unprofessional on the part of the J6 committee. Most of the questions were about things unrelated to January 6th. They were just probing for information that they simply can't get their hands on. It's just another indication that the regime has no idea what's going on on the other side. And I encourage everybody, if you're interested in this sort of thing, to read through the deposition. I sent it over to Patel Patriot, and I'm hoping to get his thoughts on it soon. Maybe I'll be able to talk him into uh, writing another long piece for devolution about this because there are hints throughout and I'm not the guy to tell you what they all mean. That's his business and he'll do a much better job than I can do. But it was a very, very interesting read. So as I wrap this up, they are in the middle of round three of the vote for the speakership. They still only have McCarthy nominated, Jeffries nominated and Jordan nominated and as it stands in round three right now, they're not going to get a winner out of this round either. So this is going to continue. We're going to see where this stands tomorrow. Maybe we'll have a winner. Maybe we won't. There are two Twitter files coming today. And so we can discuss those tomorrow. So that'll be fun. And I will be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range.
It's high noon! Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hot!